I want to tell you about Joe's albums in their two locations. The original shop at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location at 5 Market Street in the college hipster town of Northampton on Western Massachusetts. These are two amazing stores to go buy vinyl, both new and used, and a lot of other cool stuff too. It's hard to walk in either locale without walking out empty-handed due to their amazing collection of records and other cool goodies like t-shirts, mugs, posters, etc. And if you can't find what you're looking for in the retail shops, check out joesalbums.com. They got everything there, man. Everything. Well, maybe not everything, but almost everything. Joe's albums. We love them and you will too. Check out Joe's stores and tell them Twisted Rico sent you. Baby Loves Tacos proudly supports the Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico podcast. Since 2016, we've been serving soulful whole mexican style food out of a tiny storefront 4508 liberty avenue in the bloomfield section of pittsburgh um, we believe in supporting the arts community-based initiatives and podcasts like blowing smoke with twisted rico because uh, they add a richness and vibrancy to our lives uh, help to connect people build community and uh, demonstrate that following your, your dreams and your passions and holding on to relationships and spreading the love and support that we hear so much about on the podcast uh, is, is really the only way to combat um, ever-changing world where big businesses and corporations are uh, squeezing out the small guy. So if you haven't already subscribed, if you don't support via Patreon um, or any of the other platforms, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's a real privilege to listen to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico, and it's a privilege to, to hear the stories about um, you know, Steve's experiences with many bands, uh, promoting, managing, and the really awesome stories from his guests. Something I look forward to every week, sometimes twice a week. And, um, you know, my life would be very different if I didn't have Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico to look forward to. All right, take care.
other than when she's calling me to make her leap Riding along on the butterfly wing I need to wake up from my sleep Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Thank you so much for tuning in. We started things off on this show with a new song by Jim McCarty called Breath of the Wind. And this week, we're joined on the show by Jim McCarty, who was the drummer of one of the most influential bands in rock and roll history, the Yardbirds. Jim and I had a nice, fairly long conversation about the Yardbirds, also Renaissance, the progressive rock group that he started with Yardbirds lead singer Keith Ralphs. And of course, we talk about his solo stuff, including the song you just heard to start the show, Breath of the Wind, which he wrote about his departed wife, Lizzie. We'll play that interview for you shortly, so stick around. So last night, after checking out a blistering set by the Shanghai Lows at the Burn, thanks for the ticket, Lee Harrington, I went to the Justine Koval tribute show at the Crystal Ballroom in Davis Square, Somerville, at the Somerville Theater, and got to experience the love and respect the Boston music community showed for Justine Koval, the late musician, label manager, promoter. Lots of familiar faces in the room paying their respects. Lots of heartfelt performances, some of which I get to witness. The Croaks, for example, featuring Justine's daughter, Haley. They were really, really good. Hadn't seen them before. The Black Threads with a bunch of special guests filling in to, for Justine. And of course, the Bags who reunited and destroyed the place. One of the best sets I've, I've seen in a while. Guitarist Crispin Wood was married to Justine and is uh, Haley's father uh, from the Bags. Uh, also, David Minahan of the Neighborhoods and more recently the Replacements played a set of new songs and surprisingly fantastic cover of Wet Legs 2021 smash Chase Lounge. Really, I'm not kidding. It was good. I'm not I'm not saying it was surprising that it was good. I'm saying it was surprising that he played it, but he pulled it off and it was really good. In fact, there's a little clip of that on my TikTok page at Twisted Rico. Also, you can check out some of the bag set there as well if you want to see some clips from that show. Also caught some of Tom Baker's set, which is really good. Tom's always good. It was a really great tribute to a wonderful human being that left us much too soon. And Justine, I know you're up there listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. To some of us, the Yardbirds were one of the most influential and important bands in rock music history. Although the core of the band was only together for six years, they managed six studio albums, 16 singles, and a remarkable 12 live albums. The band had five different lineups. The core of the band featured Keith Ralphs on vocals and harmonica, 
Paul Samuel Smith on bass and backing vocals, Chris Drea on rhythm guitar and later bass, and Jim McCarty, our guest today, on drums. Top Topham was their original guitarist, but was gone before they recorded. A guy named Eric Clapton stepped in, and for his three years in the band, they were literally the hottest blues rock band on the other side of the Atlantic. And his last hurrah was performing their first big hit, for Your Love, before departing and forming Cream. When Clapton left, he was replaced by a guy named Jeff Beck in what was probably the best and most successful version of the band. And then for a spell, Beck and guitarist number three, Jimmy Page, were together with the band. And of course, the final version of the band included Jimmy Page, Ralph's, Drea, and Jim McCarty before they split up in 1968. The Yardbirds were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992, and all three of their guitarists were also inducted with their other more famous bands. Clapton, in fact, is in three times and is the only person to hold that honor. And you wonder about the phrase, Clapton is God. Well, there you go. He's the only musician ever to be inducted three times in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm not sure there'll be another one, but you never know. The Yardbirds are true rock and roll royalty, and it's a real honor, a real honor to have their drummer, Jim McCarty, on the show. I admit I was a little intimidated and nervous at first, but I think we connected pretty well. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Jim McCarty. It's a real honor to have you on the show today, Jim. I'm sure, I'm sure you hear that all the time, right? Uh, well, now and then, sometimes. Thank you, Steve, anyway. Okay, so who was the best guitar player in the Yardbirds? Just kidding, I'm not going to start off like that. <laughs> well, Jeff Beck, of course. Oh, yeah, okay, I, I, I'll get into that with you later, but I was kind of joking by asking you that. Yeah, we're, I know, I know. We're going to talk about the new single, Breathe the Wind, but I was hoping we could go back in history here. I understand you grew up in Liverpool, or near Liverpool. Can you talk about what it was like back then and when you started playing drums and listening to music? Uh, I can, yeah. I, I, I was actually born in Liverpool, but I didn't really live there very long uh, because my my father was uh, from the south and he was from uh, a suburb of London, just outside London, a place called Teddington. And um, my my mother and I moved down, you know, <clears throat> to uh, to be with him. So we, we, we I grew up in Teddington. Uh, so I used to go to school um, locally with Paul Samuel Smith, the bass player. Okay. And uh, and we had we, we used to have little groups together, and we had a group in um, in at school because we went to the same school, and we had a. A school group, and we used to play early rock and roll, like Buddy Holly and Everly Brothers, and thing you know, Gene Vincent songs, um, in the school dances. <laughs> what, was that the Strollers? Yeah, I think one one uh, one incarnation was the Strollers, and there was another one. Uh, I think it was the Country Gentleman, named after the Gretsch guitar. <laughs> and that, that was before you met Keith and uh, Chris and Top Top Top. Yes. Who a lot of people don't even know who he is. <laughs> yes, I know. It's funny, isn't it? Um, yeah, that was that was before that. That was when we were at school, and it wasn't till after school when when we 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 lost touch a bit when we left school, Paul and I. Um, uh, and then we met up again locally because we still lived in that area, sort of southwest London. And we met up locally and um, I, I, I remember uh, Paul said, oh, you've got to come and listen to this record. It's called Jimmy Reed at the Carnegie Hall. And um, so I went back to his house and he was still living in you know, the same place. And um, I thought, oh, this was great. I, I found out later it wasn't, it wasn't a real live recording. It was dubbed, I think. Uh, but it was it was it was such a great way of singing and such a great emotion, you know. And this was your first taste of the American blues. Yes, 
Yes, exactly. So we went from there. We started to listen to Bo Diddley and, um, uh, you know, Slim Harper, Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, of course. And, and we used to go and see the Stones because they used to play near us in Richmond. Uh, and we thought, what is this music? You know, <laughs> what is this strange sort of music, which is like rock and roll, but it's not, you know, it's it's got a different emotion to it. Was it was it around this time that you decided to start calling the band the Yardbirds? Um, yeah, what we we yes, it was a, it was sort of quite a long story, but we gradually got the group together. Um, basically, the three of the guys were art school. They were at someone called Kingston Art School, and Paul and I were at Hampton at the at the high school, the grammar school. And uh, we, you know, we got together and then uh, we, we didn't know what to call it. And Keith had a book, Keith Ralph the singer. He had a book and he wrote down all his ideas of names, you know. Uh, and we got to play, I think it was our first gig, we got to play support at Eel Pie Island, which was the famous venue in Twickenham in, in the middle of the river. <laughs> And uh, we were playing with Cyril Davis, who was a great blues harmonica player. He's re he was really good. And um, we we did our set. We we did, uh, you know, we did covers in those days. We did our set. And then Cyril Davis uh, said, oh, that was a great, that was a great uh, performance by the, by this group, you know. Oh, and he asked Keith what the name of the band was. And Keith said, oh, it's the Yardbirds. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. So you, so did you guys know he was going to say the band was called the Yardbirds at the time? No idea. No idea. He suddenly said the Yardbirds, and um, I'd, I'd never, I'd never really heard of it. And I, I found out after what it meant. You know, it meant people that travelled on the on the trains and lived in the rail yards and travelled across America. You know, they were bums really, and. Um, I thought that's a long way from the way we are. You know, we're we're kids from the suburbs of London. <laughs> wow! Did he get? He must have got that from the Jack Kerouac book. The he, Yard he Birds. did. Yes, he did. Yeah, on the I road. On the road. I didn't know that. Wow, that's incredible. So, how long did Top Topham play with you guys before you let this other guy named Clapton uh, take over for him? <laughs> um. Well, he, he he sort of got us going. He played he played for a few months, and then we we started to um, play a lot. You know, we we became quite popular very quickly, um, and we took over from the Rolling Stones in the at their club. They were playing in Richmond, as I said, in a club called the Crawdaddy Club, and we took over that residency. And then we. Uh, you know, we played in other gigs, the Ricky Tick Club and uh, Ken Collier's, these sort of clubs around London. And it was always very late and sort of quite demanding. And uh, it meant that Top couldn't do his studies. He was studying to be an artist. Um, and so that was difficult for him. And his father was an artist. Uh, and his, his father really... Um, it didn't want him to carry on playing with playing with a lot of hair, hairy idiots like us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hairy idiots, I like that. So you guys had you guys had longer hair back then already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We we grow our hair, and uh, we saw probably saw the pictures. Of, I mean, it you know wasn't that long, but I think um, yeah, I, I think when Clapton came in, he had a he had a different sort of cut. He had that. He had that crew cut, you know, a bit like Steve McQueen because he, he liked that or that American look. <laughs> the Ivy how, League. Did did Top recommend Eric Clapton or how did you find him? No, no, Eric was also at the art school with, with Keith and Chris. So they, they knew they knew him sort of vaguely and and he had a bit of a reputation already. Uh, was that before? In... Was that before John John Mayle and the Blues Breakers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he 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 didn't join John Mayle till after he left us. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
So he was just a locally known, but not really that famous yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was just a local art school kid. <laughs> uh, the the Yardbirds, uh, you know, were essentially a blues band until um, I guess Giorgio Gamelski uh, turned you guys onto a song by Graham Goldman called For Your Love. And that was kind of the beginning, the real beginning for you guys. Well, yeah, happened? yeah. Yeah, but yeah, what happened was we we were getting quite popular and getting an audience, getting you know more people coming to see us, um, and we just needed a hit record like like all our contemporaries, you know the the animals, are obviously Beatles and Rolling Stones and the Kinks, so they all had hits, and that's what we needed, and we were quite desperate really to get a hit. Um, and we tried recording some of the songs we we played in our repertoire, but they it was they weren't really commercial, you know, like "Wish You Would," "Good Morning," "It Was Cool Girl." They were sort of more blues songs. Yeah. And so um, we were actually playing with the Beatles at their Christmas show in uh, London. We were on the bill. We were the local group, you know. <laughs> The local, uh, one, you know, one of the support acts, and um, uh, there was a, happened to be a publisher from from London, and he had a, a demo disc of um, "For Your Love," done by Graham Graham Goldman, and um, so he got it over to our manager. He said, "Oh, I, I think this would suit suit the group because I saw the group playing, and you know, if they're looking for a hit, this this is the sort of thing they might like. And of course, we did. We we loved it. It was, it was a great song. Except for probably Eric Clapton, I think I read somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, yeah, we've, we've done some bluesy things, um, as I said before, uh, in the studio. But, they, they, you know, and Eric had a few ideas of what to do. But um, not, none of them were as commercial as that. You know, as For Your Love, it was, uh, you know, it was really... Very commercial, and when we recorded it, it sounded great in, in the studio. Uh, so we were very happy. But Eric had some issues within the band, you know, with other people as well. So he he was very much a loner, and he wanted to do it his way. He didn't want to be part of a team. Now, look, something I didn't mention that I want to mention: you guys played with Sonny Boy Williamson. I believe that was before. For your love, um, Sonny Boy Williamson the second, because there was actually a, <laughs> I, I, you probably know that there was another Sonny Boy Williamson from the late thirties and forties, and, and the, yeah. he's he's the second. What was that experience like for you playing with Sonny Boy? <laughs> it was very interesting. He he was called Rice Miller, really. He's in reality, and um, he was quite, you know, he could be quite like a. Uh, a mean-looking guy, you know. <laughs> and, and the word was, you never asked him if he was the real Sunny Boy. You never asked him that. You know? He he is the real Sunny Boy, and that and you take that's true. Um, and it, but he used to drink. He used to like Jack Daniels. He drank a lot, and um, we rehearsed the whole set with him uh, for that show we did uh, the live recording, and. Um, when it when it came to the show, he started playing different songs, you know, songs we didn't know. So uh, I I don't know if he, he even told the key to the guys. I don't know how they how they managed. They they picked up the key after a little little while, and 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 for me, you know, he got into a rhythm. So, <laughs> but we didn't know them. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty famous record when you find that one in the rec in the used record stores. Oh, look at that. Sonny Boy and well, the yeah. Yardbirds. <laughs> well, yeah, I I actually thought the best song he played was the one on his own. I thought it was brilliant, you know. He he didn't need us. He could play <laughs> he could play on his own. It was it was beautiful, you know. He he was a great showman. Okay, I don't but mean another, <laughs> another thing was because we were playing to our crowd. Right. So so uh, that, that they really wanted to hear us. I don't think they were that interested in them, really. That's <laughs> hilarious. I, I just want, I wanted to step back for a second because people are going to say, 
they played with the Beatles and you didn't ask him about that. So let me ask you about, did you get to know those guys at all back then? Uh, sort of. Yeah, we, we, we spoke to them uh, and um, they, they were good fun. Uh, they, they were very much, in, you know, uh, sort of looked after and very uh, pretty private because they were, you know, they were huge, you know. Um, uh, but they were good. And um, we asked them if, you know, we were looking for a hit and we asked them if they'd do a song for us. Uh, but they, they didn't. But um, John Lennon brought in a song uh, and he suggested we covered it. And it was a song uh, called The Breaking Point by Chuck Jackson. Uh, it was a Burt Bacharach song, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which was nice. It was a good song, but, we, you know, we weren't really committed to that. It, we didn't think it was a great, great idea, but it was very nice of him anyway. Well, I had to ask about the Beatles. Uh, so for <laughs> getting back getting back to For You Love, um, Apparently, the song wasn't blues enough for Eric Clapton. And how soon after it was released did he say, I don't, you know, did he leave the band? Oh, he was out before it was released. Before it was released. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it was good for us because, um, well, looking back, it was very good for us. But at the time, it was good for us because there was a vibe, you know, there was an energy in the band. It was... Uh, he was very miserable, and it was like you know playing with a miserable person. It, was, it wasn't very nice. Wow! Uh, uh, and of course, Jeff Beck could play all that stuff, uh, <laughs> and then he could play all you know all other stuff. And it was very good, very good for the band because we developed that uh, what people call a psychedelic sound, you know. Uh, I think I read that Jimmy Page actually recommended Jeff Beck. Yes, he did. He, he he was he was an understudy uh, for Je uh, for Jimmy, because uh, Jimmy was one of the top session players in London. Uh, him and Big Jim Sullivan, I think, used to play all the all the guitar records. Uh, and um, if he was busy, which he probably was quite a lot, he, he would recommend Jeff. Yeah, you 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 took a really big role in the songwriting, and you co-wrote "Shapes of Things," which became like it's hard to say which one of these songs is greater because they're all so great. Uh, what was that like with writing with Keith and Paul on some of those early songs? Even I think over under under sideways down also, you know, all those songs. Yeah, well, we we were good together. We had a good chemistry. Um, of course, Paul and I were very tight. And we got on very well with Keith. We, we you know, uh, the trio was good, and um, yeah, we, it it was good writing, especially the way Jeff was because he'd come in and play these incredible solos, incredible riffs, and things, and it and it sort of lifted the whole song into something special. So you know, thanks to Jeff, you know those songs, uh, uh, you know, people remember them for ages. So. I know that when you guys toured American, you did that a lot in the early days. Um, there were some problems on the uh, Dick Clark Caravan tour. Uh, it's pretty much documented that that didn't that tour didn't go well because they put you on with a bunch of bands that were nothing like you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Was that a difficult thing for you guys to do? I know Jeff Beck didn't like it at all because he he's talked about it. Yes, we well, we were advised it, it would be a great tour for us because we, it would be a huge audience. That was the thing. But, of course, it was a different audience. Uh, you know, the, the people like um, uh, <clears throat> Sam the Sham and Brian Highland, you know, uh, and um, what, what was he called? Um, uh, oh, I can't remember now. Was it Dean Martin's son? I, I can't remember now. Oh, um no, the other one, Dean Martin's partner's son, uh, Gary Lewis, sorry. I'm oh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were totally different to us. Um, we'd be playing uh, we'd be playing somewhere or other and people would say, oh, turn that guitar down, you know, it's too loud. You know, Jimmy Page turned down, <laughs> which is funny, isn't it? Very funny. <laughs> Telling Jeff Beck to turn down must have been real fun. <laughs> but... Uh, 
a chap, a chap didn't do it for very long. He was he was sort of quite wound up. He was a, he was a very nervous guy, and he was very um, he really wanted his sound to be good. He was very uh, conscious of his stage sound, and um, uh, he he was just quite stressed, you know, with all the travelling and all that. Like well, we all were really, but. Um, he got ill a couple of times, and um, funnily enough, we thought he had meningitis at one point. Wow. Um, and then, of course, he died of that. Um, yeah. So, I, so I, I don't know what the story was there, but um, we, we, we did. I think we did one date on the Dick Clark tour, and he said, "Oh, I can't take this anymore," and he just flipped out and he smashed up his guitar just in front of us, uh, and. And stormed out, and and that was the last we saw of him. You know, he just uh, disappeared. We had to do the tour uh, on our own. Was he out of the band after that? <laughs> yes, he left. He, le- he left. Well, he left, but he didn't say I'm leaving the band. He just he just disappeared. Wow. Uh, and we did the whole tour as a four piece, which actually didn't you know work quite well. It worked quite well without him. I'm sorry to say, but. Um, you know, great talent that he is or was, and um, it worked. And when we got back to London, we said, "Well, you know, we're okay as we are." And he sort of got sacked, <laughs> which is awful, isn't it? Awful. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that in a minute because I, I remember <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, and I wanted to ask about that. <laughs> but before before I get to that, uh, when you toured America, aside from Dick Clark, were the shows good? Besides the Dick Clark Caravan tour, say that again. Whether whether well, the the show, other the, the other tours that you did in America, besides the Dick Caravan, oh, yes, the Dick Clark, yeah, they were great. Yeah, if we were on our own, you know, we used to play little clubs and we and it would go down a storm everywhere. The the funniest thing was that we we, <laughs> we, we play with these support bands and they play all our songs. So they they play over on the sideway down or shapes of thing, you know, before we we got on. And I wow. had a story. I know I had a story um, from Alice Alice Cooper, and he said, "Oh yeah, we we played with you in Phoenix, Arizona, and we were the Spiders, and we we played all your songs before you came on." And he said, then you came on and you wiped the floor with us, he said. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of odd that they would play your songs before you played. Did that piss you guys off? Well, it was not not really. It was a sort of a compliment, you know, the people that that they knew our songs and they they liked it. But in these little clubs, I think people were quite mind blown, you know. Wow, what is this music, you know, like Jeff Beck and... Uh, that we went down a storm. Um, we played some big shows as well. You know, we played in a, uh, in some arenas, but mainly it was little little clubs, little there, sweaty there, clubs. You know. Yeah, there there was a little overlap when Jimmy Page came in and Jeff and Jimmy were together. Um, and I have to ask you about Blow Up. I didn't have that in my notes, but it just popped in my head. Do you remember when you did that scene for the movie and how they did they tell? Jeff to destroy his base. I always wanted to ask this question. Was that planned or did he just do it on his own? Oh no, no, that was all planned. I think I think Antonioni, the director, had seen the Who do it. And and he was trying to convey what was going on in the, the you know, the in the art world of the sixties, you know, the music world. And he, he wanted to convey this sort of destructive thing going on. Um I think he, I think he asked the Who to do it, and they they turned it down. Wow! Uh, so so we did it, and it was very funny because they they had us staying in London at some uh, some hotel in Knightsbridge um, for a whole week, and then we had to drive out to the studio, which was about a, you know an hour and a half drive. So uh, we got up about seven, and we'd be on the set about nine. And we'd be there for a whole week doing that. <laughs> doing that. That must have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> really funny. And then 
it's strangely enough, he had the audience all standing there, like like as if they were in trance, and that <laughs> never happened. That that wasn't that it wasn't true to us. Everyone would go mad when we played. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because so many people are like, why is everyone just standing there and staring? <laughs> I know he sort of wanted to convey that that everyone was sort of tripping or. or <laughs> I mean, maybe they were later on, you know, when we played San Francisco or something, but usually people would go mad. Um, Jimmy Jimmy came in and, and then Jeff left. And did Jimmy kind of like kind of take over in a way the direction of the band? I know you guys wrote the songs, but it seemed like on uh, Little Games, it seemed like the band started changing a little bit. Was his influence kind of a strong one with you guys? Yeah, he had a, he had a strong influence, but he was always a he was always a real gentleman. I I, I have to say, he he would always honour you and and he would talk and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't be dominating or tell you what to do or anything. He was always really nice, um, but of course he knew uh, he knew Mickey most. So he suggested Mickey most because we were looking for a hit. Um, and he knew a lot of session, session play, you know, John Paul Jones and uh, John Paul played on some of our stuff, you know, um, which was great, you know, great guy. <clears throat> so he, he was okay. And, and um, you know, there's a, lots of people ask me, oh, he was trying to shape Led Zeppelin all that time, but I don't think he was. I think he was quite disappointed, you know, that Keith and I were going to leave. Yeah, that was it. That's interesting because I was curious about that. I didn't know what direction you guys are. So you guys left before he left. Yes, yes. He he, he kept the band going as the new Yardbirds. Right. Uh, and originally they were going to have Chris Strayer involved as well. So two two of the two of the band, and then Chris got sort of sidelined. I don't know what happened there, but. Um, John Paul came into the band and uh, he got the other two guys up in Birmingham. They were in a band together, I think. Um, so I, I I don't quite know what happened. But then Chris uh, partly owned the name and, and Chris got him to stop using the Yardbird. So they had to think of another name. Let's call ourselves Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> and that came um, from Keith Moon. <laughs> um, okay, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I know I'm going far ahead here, but congratulations, by the way. Uh, that was in 1992. Um, were you surprised when Jeff Beck said that on stage that fuck these guys, <laughs> they kicked us out, kicked me out of the <laughs> I well, I, I was a bit surprised because I thought <laughs> I thought uh I, I thought it was very funny, you know, afterwards, I guess, but um yeah, I thought it was, I was a bit surprised because he was so upfront about it, you know, and I think it had a bit of truth to it. You know, he was speaking the truth, you know, he, he wasn't messing about. But. <laughs> well, I thought it was hilarious. Everyone thought it was funny. I mean, you guys ended up jamming and stuff later on, so that was cool. But, you know, he, yeah. So so were you serious when I asked you right at the beginning who the best guitar player was? You really? Yes, you I, think, yes I was. Yeah, so, I, think, I, think, I think he is because... Uh, he was because um you know he could play anything and he could play off the top of his head you know it was uh, and he never played the same uh, twice and it was never worked out you know like jimmy worked it all out and played played his part you know but not jeff jeff didn't have a part he just he just you know made it up <laughs> usually when you see a photograph of the Yardbirds and it's something really big it's always the lineup with Jeff in it that 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 shows up you know that's the lineup of the band that everyone seemed to like the best oh well that that, that was the best lineup because we were that that lineup was responsible for all the best time in the band I think you know all the hits uh you know shapes of things the heart full of soul over on the sideways down you know <laughs> I'm a man, and uh, you know. Then the happenings ten years time ago was a good song, but that was with Jimmy as well. Yeah, so uh, that was the two of them. 
I'm going to skip. I'm going to go back. To, I'm going to go to the reunion in a second, but I got to talk about Renaissance because really fantastic band. In 1969, you and Keith formed Renaissance with Keith's sister, Jane. In fact, you co-wrote most of the songs on the first two albums. Can you talk about Renaissance and how what, what the idea was and how you decided to put it together and what that period was like for you? Yeah, well, Keith and I have been writing songs, and they were they were a bit different. We 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 got on really well, Keith and I, and we we talked about all sorts of weird and wonderful things because we we often uh, shared a room together on the road, so we we built up quite a good relationship. You know, quite quite we were quite spiritual, and um, when we got back to London, you know, we'd spend a lot of time writing uh, songs together. And we had a few ideas, and then after we left the band, um, we we did a few recordings that, that didn't really work so well. And we met um, a manager figure that suggested that we formed a band. So we formed this band, and um, we used to practice in my house every day. All the band, all the band was all set up, you know fully and everyone would come down to my house my front room you know <laughs> and we'd work on some of the ideas and we we gradually built up this what we called a set so we we played for a, we worked up this set we played for an hour and we wouldn't stop in the middle we just keep going you know um and then we were lucky because um jo john hawkin the keyboard player he he'd been in a band called the nashville teens that was like a rock and roll uh, band, you know, and he played a bit like Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, uh, but then it, one day we were playing along and uh, some song and he started to play classical, you know, he started to play some Beethoven. Uh, and we thought, oh, that, that's, that's unusual, it's quite unique. <laughs> so, so we kept that in. It was a, it was a bit of an accident, but it, it worked. So... So that that became almost like the spirit of the band. It was a classical prog prog rock sound, really. One of the first prog rock bands, really. When you think about it, you guys were yeah. like ahead of the game. Yes, and and we we just fell in because uh, uh, suddenly the album market was very big, and um, we got in touch with Ireland Records, and they had a lot of. Um, albums that were doing well you know like the fairports and yeah uh, Jeth jethro tal and you know um the incredible string band they had they had all those sort of groups uh, uh, and of course we we went for it you know with that, that they signed us up to do the album did renaissance and fairport ever play together because that seems like that would have been a pretty good duo we no but the, i think the new band did i heard that the, i think the new band did a tour with them but that was after us. Yeah, you let you left after two records, and then yeah. Um, did you take a break? I mean, I know you were in a few other bands, but did you take a break at all? Because I know the Yardbirds reformed in 1994, but there's a pretty significant amount of time in there. Were you just doing other projects? Uh yeah, I, I kept busy. I was lucky, you know. I kept playing, and I I always loved to be involved, and um. Yes, there was a band called Illusion that was a bit like Renaissance with the same same members that we developed after Keith died. And there's a new box set out actually um, of Illusion just come out, which is very very nicely put together. And then of course the box of frogs, which was in the eighties. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you, well, yeah, I didn't mean that you took a break, but. <laughs> I guess you didn't really take a break. Um, in in '94, you reformed the Yardbirds uh, with an album called Birdland, and I love how you brought in all these guitarists like Brian May, Skunk Baxter, Joe Satch, Slash, Steve Vai, and even Jeff played on a track. So I guess you let him back in. Uh, yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. I love, I, I loved it. It was, it was great because. Um, it's a funny old story, you know. We, we uh, it was all got together by um, a woman that Chris used to know, who was a Chinese woman called Judy Wong, 
and and she lived in uh, LA and um, she knew we'd got back together and she used to converse a lot with Chris Dreyer and um, she, she got to meet um, so I can't remember his name now but he ran the whole uh, gu uh, what guitar shop you know what's it called guitar uh, center guitar center that's yeah. right he he ran all the guitar centers in America. Uh, I I can't remember his name, but he he was involved with Steve Vai, and Steve Vai wanted to put a record label together and call it Favored Nations, and this guy that ran the guitar shops he, he put the money in, uh, and uh, Steve heard through this woman Judy that that the Yardbirds were looking for a record to do, you know. So we went from there and uh, we had a lot of help along the way and uh, and it was the idea to re-record some of the, the old songs with, with new people and, you know, famous people. Yeah, I'd uh, say. <laughs> and do some of our songs as well, you know. Uh, so I think it worked, it worked well. How did you get some of these guys like Brian? Well, the date, I mean, who did, were you involved in the recruiting process for Brian May and Skunk Baxter? And Well, well, we, we were lucky. We had uh, somebody called Robert Knight. Have you heard of him? Robert Knight. He, he, yeah, yeah. A, he's a photographer, really. And he lived, he lived in LA and he, he got, he got behind it. Uh, and um, he knew Slash and some of the other people, and then it, it just it blossomed, you know. It it, it gathered it gathered moss, and uh, once people knew who was playing on it, they wanted to play. You know. <laughs> did, did you guys know Brian May from England? Did you know Did you know those guys at all, Queen? I I, di I didn't know Brian very well, but uh, strangely enough, he went to my old school. Oh. And he, I think he was in the first form when I was in the sixth form. You know, he was about five or six years younger, uh, and so we sort of knew 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 him. And um, he turned out to be such a lovely, lovely guy. You know, really nice person. And uh, he, he uh, somebody got in touch with him. I think we wrote to him. You know, in those days, wrote him a letter. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and he said he'd like to play on it. So he, he did a lovely job. It worked out pretty well. Uh, right around the same time in 94, you put out a solo record, Out of the Dark. And uh, was that done before you reformed the Yardbirds? Uh, yes. Yes. I, 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 I'd done a bit of stuff in sort of, uh, you know, quotes, new agey music, you know, with, with Louis Sanamo that was in renaissance the bass player and we we'd done a few things uh for you know relaxation and therapy sort of music uh and um the people there were very helpful to me they they, they said oh what you know why, why don't you do your own album and there was, there was a lot of help and um it just like everything else it just came together very slowly and and then it happened and i was very pleased with it yeah, you seem to really like the the more laid back, uh, not even more progressive. Because I listen to stuff on some of your records, and of course we're going to get to um, "Breath of the Wind" here. Uh, you put out "Sitting on Top of Time" in two thousand nine, and then "Walking in the Wildlands." So you've been, you know, you've been constantly writing your own material. Uh, "Walking in the Wildland" was recently reissued, but was the track "Breath of the Wind"? Uh, did you consider putting that on that record? Yeah, I did. It was. It's a good story because it came out originally um, on Angel Air. Uh, you know, I think about five years ago, maybe four or five years ago. Um, 18, 2018. Yeah, yeah, five years ago. Yeah, and uh, then for some reason, Demon said, "Oh, we'd like to put it out again." which they did, I think it was last year. And um, I, I had this song, Breath of the Wind, and I said, well, would you like to put a different song on? Because it makes it, you know, makes it more interesting for people that have bought the original. Uh, and they said, oh, well, it's all going through now. It's too late for that, you know. But, but we'll release this song as a standalone 
single. So I, I sent them that song and, and it went from there. I was very pleased. It's a beautiful song. You, you wrote a book called She Walks in Beauty, which you said began on the worst day of your life, June 7, 2020, the day your wife Lizzie passed away. And, and the song Breath of the Wind picks up the theme of the book and reflects on the spiritual collect, uh, connection that you had with Lizzie. Can you talk about that for a few minutes? I mean, I know that's self-explanatory, but I like to hear it in your words. Yeah, sure. I, I, it was. It was a terrible day and a terrible time, you know, because she was she was in the house when she died and she was looked after by nursing care and all that for a few months. Um, and it, she just went downhill and there was nothing we could do. Um, and, and then she died. And, of course, there was the consequences of that, this terrible sort of grief, you know. Um but we were very close spiritually, uh, Lizzie and I, and um, I thought, well, she she has to be around somewhere. <laughs> she can't just disappear. And uh, so I got into um, studying sort of near-death experiences and studying mediumship, and I got involved with a medium called Susanna, uh, Suzanne Giesman, who's a, uh, is, she, she's in Virginia, Um and uh, oh no no sorry Carolina and um, so I started doing some courses you know on her Zoom courses I think it was in the lockdown and so it was, it was quite handy and I, I learned how to go through the you know the simple techniques of of contacting uh, somebody like like my wife and managed to uh, manage these really funny experiences, which I thought I have to write about, you know, because it's so amazing. Uh, it, it, it's almost unbelievable that these things have happened. So actually, after that terrible time I had, my, my life has changed, uh, changed into something quite different. And when, when, uh, when I had the song, I, I, I did the song, um, with a, with a friend here, a, a local friend in his little studio, and I'd uh, I had a, a medium mystic session with her with Suzanne, and Suzanne said, "Oh yeah, yes, your wife's here," and uh, she says, "Oh, you've written a song for her," uh, and I thought, oh, "Have I? <laughs> oh yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I do have a song," and she said, "I I want to hear it because she's quite a, a forceful." woman you know I, oh, send it to me so I sent it to her and uh, she said oh yeah yeah this is lovely you, you've really got it here so I sent it to someone I'd worked with on the Walking in the Wildland album somebody called Hugh Syme yeah I know him well yep. yeah you know him <laughs> well I know him from you know he designed covers for Aerosmith Dream Theater I actually worked on a record Fate's Warning that he did the cover for when I was at Metal Blade Records but he's done like Megadeth Sticks tons of bands I was surprised to hear that he worked on the arrangement though on the record <laughs> I know it's really funny because uh, <clears throat> um, because I, I worked very closely on the album last album with Terry Brown who was, oh, uh, yeah. you know, a rush, rush, rush producer. producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, oh. and Terry's English. And, of course, he knew Hugh. And he said, oh, <laughs> I sent, you know, I sent one of your songs over to, to Hugh, who'd, who's done this arrangement. So I thought, that's very strange. He, so he's a musician. And he did some beautiful arrangements yeah. on The Walking in the Wildland. He's such a talented guy. I mean... <laughs> anyway, when I sent him this song, The Breath of the Wind, um, he, he said, oh, I love this song. You know, it's got a very sad sort of uh, beautiful quality to it. And he said, I'll get down to it when I set up my recording system because he moved to America from Toronto. <laughs> so I didn't get the song back for about two years. <laughs> But two years later, it came back and he said, oh, I've finally done the arrangement. Talk about time. <laughs> and I got that arrangement back and I thought, this is great. So I sent it to Terry and he, he mixed it all and and, uh, and that was finished. So it was an easy job for me. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> are you Where are you living now? You're not in the States, are you? No, I'm in France. France. Wow. Nice. How do you like living there? 
Yeah, I, I, lo I love it. it. It's beautiful and beautiful weather here. And it's, a, it's in Provence, you know, it's a lovely area. It's got mountains and forests and a lot of beautiful landscape. And um, I, I've lived here for about 20 years now. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I know you've written a few books. Are you, what, are you, what are your plans for the future now? I'm not sure, actually. Um, I'd, I'd like, if I, if I could, the, the thing is with these recordings that I do, I have to fund them all. So I, it doesn't make me a lot of money, really, <laughs> the way the music business is. But I, I, enjoy, I enjoy it and I love singing and writing. Um, it, it would be nice to do a whole album bit like breath of the wind you know i think i think that would be something I'd, I'd like to aim towards do you listen to a lot of other music now is there anything that's happening out there now that catches your attention uh a lot, a lot of varied music you know classical a lot of classical music uh i like the french composers you know Debussy and all that all them um yeah uh i not obviously blues and jazz um a mix a mixture do you like Kataro and Kataro and Stomi Yamashita and Vangelis people like that as well yes I yes I used to listen to that a lot I, I don't listen so much anymore to to that um but I used to like that a lot yeah Kitaro, I kind of figured so. you might you mentioned new age music before and I thought maybe that was something but deep down inside, you're a rocker because you're one of the great drummers of all time. <laughs> and one, one of the great bands of all time. And thank you so much. You know, I know uh, it really means a lot to me that you came on the show because I love the Yardbirds. They were a little before my time, but I have a box set. And, uh, you know, I agree with you. Jeff Beck was my favorite guitar player in the band. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> as well. <laughs> but, oh, well um, it was a very, very nice interview. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Jim. Very good. Take care. So, so when, oh. when will that when will that go out? Let's go out. Sometime. Oh, probably in about a week. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Thanks I'll let for... you. I'll let your publicist know for sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks for having us on the show. Anyway. Take care. Okay. And you. Bye. Okay, so my head was spinning for a bit after we spoke. And once it sunk in, I started calling and texting some of my friends. Well, the ones that would understand anyway how I felt and what a thrill this was. Thank you, Jim McCarty, for being such a nice human being and taking the time to talk with us. And also Ann Layton, who is Jim's publicist, and Shana in our booking department, all of you for helping get this going today because it was uh, definitely a real thrill for me to talk to a member of the Yardbirds. You're kidding me? I want to also take this opportunity to thank everyone that has been reaching out lately. The last couple of weeks, I've been getting a lot of love, feeling a lot of love all over the show, man, from people everywhere, emails, text messages, calls. And also when I was at Justine Koval's tribute show, lots of nice compliments from folks about the show. It's really working. It really is. It's working. Okay. Thank you all so much. If you feel inclined, please support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash twisted Rico or by subscribing on Spotify. All right. Uh, my email is twistedrico at gmail.com. Please write me there anytime. You can also write us at blow at blowing smoke with TR on Instagram. We have a Facebook and YouTube page where you can actually watch Jim and I converse. It's, it's fun to watch. It was fun for me to do it. And also the TikTok page, which I mentioned earlier, at Twisted Rico. That's going to do it for this time. Till the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive. <laughs>